Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Let's draw attention to Ephesians chapter 5 as we've been studying this over the last 12 or 13 weeks, really, basically the essence of summer. Uh, we've really been focusing on the theme of light. Uh, of course, that is not only our theme uh, for missions this year, but our theme as a church, carry the light, keep the light, as you've seen so many different places here on the platform. When you get into the scriptures and you look up light, light stands in, in stark contrast to darkness. Uh, light is seen as truth that comes from God in heaven. Light is represented as the gospel by which was God's plan, is God's plan to save eternity. Uh, darkness is seen by that uh, bumbly effort, bumbling effort that man expresses. Darkness is seen by one that is without light. Darkness is seen by the means by which the evil one blinds the hearts of those that are without the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Light is expressed by the believer's obedience to preach the gospel here, there, and everywhere. Philippians chapter 2, he says that you would shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. And so light and darkness are seen as contrast. And if you'll notice in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly in verse number 1 and 2, he's telling us to be ye therefore followers. Uh, Circle in your Bible that word mimics, if you will, imitators of Christ. And then we're commanded in verse number 2 to walk. In the Greek words peripeto, it has the idea uh, to walk about. It has the idea of giving diligence in an essence. You're to walk as love. In verse number 8, you're to walk as children of light. You come down to the second half in verse number 15, uh, you're told to walk circumspectly. Ephesians chapter 5 in one sense is the aerobic chapter of the Bible. Walk, 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 walk. And yet this walk is distinct from our normal behavior. And I want to notice that for a moment because as you're dealing with this idea of uh, matrimony, you're dealing of, with spouses, a husband and a wife, it should be noted how important your relationship with the Almighty God is. I'll let you in on a secret. Now, you won't learn this until you've been married about 20 years. That's what, that's, you won't learn it until then. You don't know it at day 20. You don't know it. Your spouse will disappoint you. Okay, you don't really need 20 years to figure that out. But that's what's going to happen. In a greater sense, friends will disappoint you. Greater sense, your pastor will disappoint you. How do you deal with a matter of relationships in a spiritual mindset if you're not walking with God? You know, one of the things that folks face today is uh, being rejected. You go out, you tell someone of the gospel, and they're not interested in it. That ought to bother our hearts, but it happens. You can convey to some that you're praying for them. I don't care if you're praying for them. Folks, to be rejected, Christ knows all about that. For He was the rejected Lord. In the crucible of His ministry, as He prepared and was hanging and prepared to hang on the cross, you even have His disciples, yea, I speak of Peter, rejecting Him, denying His existence. In a time where He needed them to pray, they failed Him, they slept. How do you deal with these matters? You better walk in the Spirit of God. Notice, if you will, verse 17. 
For if we miss, really verse 17 and 18, if we miss these two points, none of the rest will ever happen as God would have it happen. Notice verse 17. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine, where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be yielded with the Spirit. To be yielded to the Spirit is to be compliant and yielded to what God wants for you. Now, if we polled us, if we polled everybody and said, now raise your hand if you want to do the will of God. Almost everybody, everybody's going to put their hand up. Yet in the practical things of life, that's where we run into conflict. God has a specific plan and a specific structure for my life. He is a sovereign God. He doesn't create something and then go, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't think about that. Oh my, I forgot about that. When God created you as a gender, be it male or female, he said of that, it is good. It is not an accident that you were born the gender that you have. It is not an accident that you have the personality that you have. It is not an accident that God has equipped you with the talents that he has equipped you with. God is a sovereign God and all of it is intentional. The responsibility of each of us then is to be submissive and filled with the Spirit of God. Now when we come down to some of these practical matters, and these following verses, and we'll be in these verses at least one more week, but in these following verses you have a great paradigm. You have that which exists between Christ and those believers by which He has died for that is expressed as the church here. And you have that in which is seen in a husband and wife relationship, wife and husband. But if you move down to chapter 6, you've got children obeying their parents. So I can say that there is a perfect will of God for how children should interact with their parents. I can come later to verse number 5 and say there's a perfect will of God as it pertains to being a servant. God in His perfect will has expressed a desire to you for what he wants from you and what he wants for you and the way in which you can obtain this, but it's impossible to do so if you don't walk with God. There really is the nitty-gritty of this particular statement. Um, Walking with God is not the same thing as going to church. Now, I would say of this, someone that's walking with God is in church. There's a love for those things. But they're not the same thing. What I'm submitting to you is you can go to church every day of the week and be as carnally minded. In fact, I'll move that a step beyond. You you can go to church every day of the week and be lost. So how do you know that? Well, I did it for a long time. 16 years. In fact, uh, my parents started, my parents got saved um, two months before I was born. And their life dramatically changed. And for the balance of her pregnancy with me, they were in church. And I imagine I wasn't in church the day after I was born, but pretty close after that I was in church. And it's what I knew from the time I was able to just teeter-totter about. But going to church is not the same thing as being saved. And going to church is not the same thing as walking with God. 
Let me give you another one. Going to church isn't, or rather, uh, having a spiritual or a real relationship with Christ is not the same thing as being saved. There are many believers who do not walk in the will of God. There are many carnally-minded believers. You know what's going to happen if you have two believers and they're both having no real genuine relationship or I should say perhaps even a consistent relationship with God? You know how they're going to behave themselves? By that which comes natural. They're not really going to consider what God wants in a matter. They're going to consider their own personal preferences. And therefore, as it comes to these roles that were outlined, for instance, in verse number 22, the wife's going to have a tremendous difficulty with this idea of submission. And you come down to verse number 25, the husband's going to have a great problem with loving. Why? Because they are walking after the flesh. And the only antidote for walking after the flesh in our lives is yielding submissively to the Spirit of God. Your flesh and the will of God are contradicted to each other. Galatians says they're at enmity one with another. They're at war with each other. Your flesh doesn't want to please God. And pleasing God will never truly fulfill the lust of your flesh. There's a conflict. And so you and I must, if we're endeavoring to have and to espouse these roles and to see God work, it always begins with having a right, real relationship with God. Now last week, when we looked at this, we dealt with the matter of love. We highlighted what love wasn't. And I gave you a whole series, I guess eight or nine things. Love Love isn't intimacy. Love isn't pet names. Love isn't uh, uh, desires. Whole list of what love wasn't. And then we focused on what biblically love was. And I listed seven things. I spoke of it in this regard that love biblically, um, and the idea here is agape, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, charity suffereth long. And we looked at some of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we said that love is enacted, love is enunciated. It's spoken of. Love is enduring. It never fails. Love is evidenced. In Romans chapter 5, God commended His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is extolled in sacrifices. Uh, John chapter 10, the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. Love is extraordinary. It's not based on our performance. In the 103rd Psalm, the psalmist says, Um, regarding the Lord, that he knew that the psalmist, and by extension you and I, that our frame was but dust. He knoweth our frame. As a father pitieth the son, so God pitieth those that love him. There is a matter of love just being extraordinary. Then we spoke of love being earnest, a level of genuineness. The Lord, Ephesians chapter 2, rich in mercy. The psalmist says in the 112th Psalm, he's full of compassion. And so we need to spend that little time uh, understanding that love is not what is communicated in newspapers and Hallmark channels. That's not what love is. And I think really that is a great problem. Many people, when we consider love, we're really not considering what God said love was. We're rather deciding what we think love is or what we wish love is. If we want this true definition, we must understand what God said about love. 
So with those things established, we want to look at this phrase this morning, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I would submit to you again, it is of utmost importance to remember the context of Ephesians chapter 5, that love and submission, marital oneness, is only possible when we are filled with the Spirit of God and are supremely, primarily submissive, first and foremost, to Christ. A husband that is not submissive to God will not be a husband that can fulfill this biblical imperative of husbands love your wives. Oh, how many times this is an issue in the hearts of men. Uh, Early on, prior to getting married, they looked at each other and they talked about love that they had. My, I don't know that I've ever in the U.S. ever heard of a marriage where two people came to an altar and said they really thought it was a good idea to get divorced, or rather, I'm sorry, good idea to get married because they really didn't love each other. There's a feeling of something. But the reality is in our society that so often love is not a biblical concept, it's a humanistic concept from a point of view, and people fall into it and fall out of it all the time. And yet, notice this passage. Notice it again, verse 25. I want you to see the utter clarity of it. Husbands, fall in love with your wives. Is that what it says? No. It simply conveys, husbands, love your wives. Now, why is it that God would give that command? Well, I think one of the reasons is because there is innately hindrances to husbands biblically loving their wives. Let me give you a few of them this morning. These are just common hindrances. I think one of the great hindrances is the matter of incorrect motives. Incorrect motives. Too often, we determine that love really is self-love. As a, as a uh, uh, standing on the opposite of reflecting Christ's type of selfless love. So oftentimes, one of the great hindrances is we have to get over loving ourselves. And it's not as easy as one might think. In fact, I would submit, again, it's only possible if you're walking with God. Drop your eyes down to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29. Perhaps, if time allows, we'll look at this this morning. But note verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. You don't hate yourself. You, I, love ourselves. Occasionally you'll meet people and they'll talk about how much they hate their self. I'm often thinking about this verse in those contexts. No, usually... They're just so frustrated that they're not getting what they want in life. No man ever yet hateth his own self. See, the great problem that's going to bring the husband loving the wife is there's somebody else he loves more. You know who it is? What's the person he looks at in the mirror? Now let me ask you a question. Now answer carefully in your hearts. Who is it that the husband should love most of all? Think, think. Deuteronomy 6. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You know why it's so important for you to love God preeminently? 
because only when you love the Lord God preeminently will there be a decrease in your self-love that will open the door for you to love others as Christ has commanded you. Incorrect motives. I'll give you a second hindrance to biblical love. Arrogance. If, if you struggle with the thought of what arrogance is, then just put it in, you know, five little letters. P-R-I-D-E. Really, the essence of arrogance and pride is self-focus. Self-focus. Incorrect motive is self-love. Pride is self-focus. Self-focus is often seen when we have little consideration for others. We have little consideration for anything outside of how we are wronged. We have nothing really that we can truly learn. We know all. You, you can hear that sometimes. And you get, uh, uh, Scripture tells us that only by pride cometh contention. And the reality is that there's so often the case where pride and arrogance prevents biblical love from being present. In fact, the opposite of arrogance and pride really is a humility of service. For instance, you hear often uh, couples in their expression one to another, uh, the husband might say, well, I'll do such and such if she will do this. You know what's being said? If she'll focus on me, I'll focus on her. You know what that is? That's arrogance and pride. Biblical love would be to express it in the sense that I'm going to aid her for Christ's sake. Pride and arrogance manifest itself in the expression of what's in it for me. As opposed to, in Christ I am complete. Pride and arrogance always pinpoints the failures of others. She is so, fill in the blank, negative, always negative. He is so, and you might be right. You might be right. But pride focuses in on that, as opposed to the proclaiming of all the goodness that is present. Arrogance and pride will keep the husband from loving his wife. He'll declare rather that she should appreciate him. As though as he is the finality of all in all. Pride and arrogance, the de personal declaration of I am right, as opposed to showing a willingness to listen and consider. Pride and arrogance showcasing itself as I'll choose what brings me comfort as opposed to biblical love that will suffer discomfort for the one that is loved. That's a distinguishing characteristic there. Think of Christ. It was He that washed the disciples' feet. Think of Christ in His interaction with Peter. He called Peter a little devil, you know. Peter talking about he'd go to Christ, go with Christ even to the very end. The Lord looking at Peter and said unto him, The devil would sift thee as wheat, but Peter, I have prayed for thee. That when thou art re uh, converted, the idea of recovery, thou would minister to thy brethren. There's an expression of one that chose the Lord Jesus, something that would bring comfort by suffering discomfort, as opposed to focusing only on the comfort of an individual. Incorrect motives, arrogance, pride, We'll give you a third one that hinders biblical love. Fear. Fear. To Timothy, Paul wrote, God has not given us a spirit of fear. It's been well documented. There's over 360 fear knots 
in all of scriptures. Fear. I think there's a fear of the loss of happiness. And this loss of happiness causes sometimes a husband to seek to control his wife, to dominate her. It's almost like there's a fear of leaving as opposed to resting in the truths of the Word of God, as opposed to loving his wife, fear. A fourth one, bitterness. Bitterness. In Ephesians chapter 4, let all bitterness and wrath and evil speaking and malice be put away with you. That's a marvelous consideration, bitterness. That acrid root sin that manifests itself in so many ugly ways. One way in which bitterness manifests itself is that in fault finding. That in vengeance. I think about the expressions that come natural to us when we're wronged. I'll get even. I'll get even. Is it Romans chapter 12? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. What's the next expression? My biblical love is not getting even with the wife that may have injured you. It's rather doing good to her despite the evil that she has given. By the way, that leads me to a second element of this bitterness. It's the proclamation, I'll never forgive her. I'll never forgive her. As opposed to biblical love, I will forgive her for Christ's sake. I always thought about that. I'll never forgive somebody. Or I'll forgive them but never forget it, which is emblematic of the first statement. That lack of forgiveness is a failure to embrace the love that God has commanded to be had in relationships to the great extent of the marital bonds. Bitterness, the fault finder, tearing one down verbally as opposed to complimenting her. Diminishing the value of one as opposed to thanking them. I mean, these lists could go on, but bitterness is a great inhibition, preventative measure that prevents a husband from loving his wife as is the biblical man in verse 25. Let me give you one more. I think this is an inhibition in every aspect of love, both relationally, both parentally, both in regards to our marriage, in our church, in our ministry, and even in our relationship with God. It's one of the great things that prevents us from loving God and developing the relationship we ought to have with Him and loving our wife and developing the relationship with her we ought to have. It's busyness. It's busyness. We live in a society that often speaks of itself being task or success-oriented. In fact, we live in a society that is object-oriented too. Object-oriented, they like what they see. We live in a world where, um, you know, with each passing year, and I'm, I, I'm not commending this as wrong, I'm using this rather as an example, but with each passing year, new models of cars roll out. And very often, what do they do? More options, changing the styles and the design. Why? Because the eyes of man are never satisfied. Man struggles with being content. And so in our society, folks have capitalized on this and make modest changes and take more of your money for those modest changes. 
and you have the apparency of some greater level of success. We're a very object-oriented society. We're a very task and success-oriented society. Why, in our society, if you don't labor hard enough, strong enough, fast enough, if you're not in the right vocation, if you don't make the right amount of money, if you don't have the appeal to success, then you're not successful. I think of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9, and sarcastically the preacher says to the young men, he says, go about, let thy heart cheer thee. Go the way you want. Go whichever way society has told thee, but note that you'll stand before your Creator God and give an account. Busyness often dehabilitates love in a relationship. What a sad calamity that sometimes folks are too busy or too outwardly focused to really embrace the love of Christ for someone else. With regard of business, we've got marriage or rather money-oriented people. Proverbs 23 talks about labor not to be rich. We've got leisure-oriented people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, those that are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Oh, the calamity that that often causes. About a year ago, I was visiting um, some folks and I ran into this, this one lady and she was all distraught. So I sat down just for a few moments to be an encouragement to her. She's up in years and she was distraught because she had been moved from the house that she lived in and she's now having to live somewhere else. And it was amazing me and I, she had lost her husband and I began to talk a little bit and thought I could comfort her and I was a bit taken aside. She said, oh, well, we really didn't love each other. We were too busy for that. What a sad calamity that individuals can live together and feel that somehow the length of years is equal to success, but to have never experienced the relationship of biblical marriage in the sense that God wanted them to. No spiritual oneness. They were too busy. They had other loves in their life. They had other pleasures. I mean, the, the pinnacle of achievement for the man, you know, was to get in the point where he could get in his boat, on his couch, wherever he wanted just to enjoy life, instead of having the time to invest it. And obeying the biblical command, husbands, love your wife. Too busy to commune. Too many things on my mind to love. Too overextended. I've went and bought all the toys in life that my heart enjoyed. I've got the latest rod and reel. I've got the latest uh, TV package. I've got the latest this or the latest that. And I'm just too overextended. I can't spend any money on her. Busyness is a huge hindrance. Listen, if a husband is going to love his wife, write this, write this word beside here. It's an investment of time. Relationships will not happen without an investment of time. That's true. We, we learned that with childhood friends. Let us not forget it once we've married that lady or that man that is supposed to be our best friend in the sense of marriage, an investment of time. Husbands, love your wife. You've got your notes in hand. I want you to think about that word, charity. Charity, C-H-A-R-I-T-Y, seven. Seven letters. Let me give you just seven biblical perspectives 
on husbands loving your wife. If you want, you could write at the top of it, how to love your wife. Biblically, how should I love her? We've talked about a host of things that it's not. That was last week. And sadly, there may be some that look at that and say, well, that's really what I thought it was. (laughs) It's not. No, biblically loving her. Let her see. See. Choose her. Choose her. If you want to write beside that, this doesn't begin with C, but you could say, prefer her. Prefer her. Prefer her over others. A lot of times that old marital vow, eyes for thee and no others. Prefer her. And certainly if you're going to choose her, choose her and her needs above your own. Listen to a passage. It, it's, it's over here. We're in Ephesians. Look over Philippians. Maybe in mine it's like three pages. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This isn't talking about the marital bond. But if the marital bond is to be greater than the relationship bond that I would have with other individuals, it's certainly more than applicable. Ready? Look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul writing to the Philippian saints, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem himself, what? Let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the what? Choose her. Put her preferences over others. Particularly, over your own preferences. With regard to choosing her, an expression that has been near and dear to my heart over what will soon be 20 years is this. Marriage is ministry. We speak of ministry. We speak of people that go into the ministry or people that have a ministry. But marriage is ministry. You know, part of ministry is really service, servant mentality. Uh, I never really served as a waiter any of my life, but my first paying job was in the food industry, and I washed dishes. I was not critical of what people did with their plates. Some people mix weird sauces together. Some people order stuff and then don't eat it. I never understood that one. But to get these, what was my job? What was that role? Wash the dishes. Now, I can't say that to this day that I love doing that. But in the relationship that God has given us a husband and wife, there are many tasks that must be done. A husband then, if he's going to be the leader of the home, must choose his wife and he must see marriage as ministry. He must prefer her. He must choose her. Letter H. Let him hear her. Hear her. You know, the analogy here is Christ and the church, husband, the wife. Now I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5. Casting all your care upon him for he... What prayer is it that God does not hear? My, if 
God heard our prayer like the average husband hears his wife, we'd be in a deep fix, wouldn't we? What's that old saying about selective hearing? Hear her. Hear her. Let me give you, there's an order to it now. See, a lot of times we men, you know, you hear something and you immediately want to jump jump to the solution. The car won't start. See, the battery, it doesn't have gas. Jump to the solution. When it comes to hearing your wife, you need to listen with interest to her concerns. And I will let you in on a little secret. Very likely, concerns that she would have are not your concerns. They're different wavelengths. They're on different measured planes. She's running on the amplified modulation, AM, and you're running on FM. So listen to her. Discipline yourself to be interested in what she's interested to. Shut up and listen. Number two, have some compassion. By compassion, you're talking about a level of tenderness. You're talking about patience. You're talking about how Christ has compassion upon you and I. Oh, how marvelous His compassion is. His mercy to us is new every morning. His faithfulness is great. So listen and express compassion. Number three, you want to hear? Give her encouragement from God's Word. By the way, that's the only real encouragement you can truly give. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those Thessalonian believers concerned about those that had died as though they might miss the resurrection. And Paul outlines in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the trump, and we which are dead and alive shall rise first. They which, uh, uh, those that are dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive remain, be called up together with our Lord to meet Him there. So shall we ever be. You remember verse 18? Wherefore comfort one another with these. You know, there are some things in life you can't fix. I've yet to figure out how to fix all the people problems. I can't do that. But you know what I can do? I can get comfort from the God of all comfort. I can look to Jesus Christ. I can have a biblical principle or precept from the Word of God that can caress my heart during the greatest storm of life. So husbands, you love your wife by hearing her, by giving her encouragement. And then by number four, helping her find a solution. And uh, that is a legitimate order. If you move the fourth one to the first one, it will not work the same way. The scripture likens only a fool to a man that has the answer before he's heard the problem. There is an order. H, hear her. A, aid her. Aid her. Help her. After all, listen to verse 28 of Ephesians chapter 5. So ought men to love their own wives, love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Aid her. Aid her. Right parentheses, help her. Don't wait to be asked. 
You know what tasks she has. You know what household responsibilities exist. Don't wait to be asked. Preemptively strike. Aid her. Christ and His love for us is described in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6. He says in verse 5, never forsake us. In verse 6, He said, Then we may say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I understand in Genesis chapter 3 that the wife was made for the husband. She is described as the help meet. If you want to express your love, aid her, help her, assist her. Look at the fourth one. Raise her up. Now, I'm not talking about bench pressing her. I'm not talking about lying to her. I'm rather talking about encouragement, particularly from the Word of God. We can think of Proverbs chapter 31. I find one of the most enlightened verses of Proverbs chapter 31 is this. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. He hath no need of spoil. He that obtaineth a wife findeth favor of the Lord. A good wife is from the Lord. We look at these things and I would say, well, why could I then not encourage her? Biblically compliment her. Encourage her with the appreciation and thanks. By the way, a spiritually minded man is always abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 20 of Ephesians 5, giving thanks always for all things. Is not my wife one of those things that would be encompassed with all things? Should I not be thankful and extol her and exalt her? Not in an unnatural sense, certainly not above the things of God. But there should be an element in my life where I seek to encourage her and to compliment her and to express levels of appreciation and thanks to her. Raise her up. I think sometimes we look at that and we men have had a rough day. And nobody has, I'm being sarcastic here, just a subtle warning. Nobody had a rougher day than what we had. I mean, do you know the burdens we bore today? It's horrible. Let me tell you how badly things were. And then we meet with our wife and we've jumped to the assumptions that the difficulties that we have endured this day far would outweigh most men. Most men would wilt under the pressures upon which we endeavor. Most men would just crumple under the mighty weight that is upon our shoulders. You know nothing. Now there's a man pretty well caught up in himself. And he'll fail to realize the great ministry he can have to his wife and the intentionality of seeking to raise her up. I, C-H-A-R-I. How about invest in her? Invest in her. She takes Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express. Cash is the favorite form. No, I'm just, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm not speaking about finances at all. I'm talking about spending time with her. And perhaps doing so in what she enjoys. There's a great Greek word throughout the New Testament. Fellowship. Commune with her. John said in 1 John chapter 3, 
that you may also have fellowship with us. What a glorious thing to invest time in your wife having fellowship with her. Investing in her. Well, I'm busy. I understand we're task success oriented. You don't understand when we were young, when we were young, you know, but now we just know everything there is to know about each other. What a travesty. What a travesty to forget that people change. I mean, very few of us have the same patterns and habits of life that we had when we were 19. What a terrible travesty. I'm just not interested in investing in her. T, tenderly lead. I'm always amazed at the husband that will proclaim very quickly, verse 22, Wives, submit ye forth yourselves unto the Lord. As unto the Lord, submit, 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 he'll cry. But he'll never read the scriptures with his wife unless there's an ulterior motive to do so. Unless he happens to say, let's do a Bible study on Ephesians 5, 22. No, he wouldn't. No, but he doesn't have time to read. He doesn't have time to pray with her. He doesn't have time for anything outside of what he wants. Tenderly loving husband who's walking in the fear of God and submitting himself to God and fulfilling the will of God and having a relationship with God, he'll read scripture with her. He'll pray. He'll encourage her to use her time and talents for the Lord through her church. I think of Romans chapter 16. Our dear city Phoebe, we commend her unto her. She's been a sucker of many. Tenderly lead. I might also add that there'll be times where there's a confrontation. I would submit to put that in this line item. Tenderly. She's not your beast of burden. She's not your maid. She's not your seamstress. She's not your dishwasher. She's not your cook and window cleaner. Your bed maker. I'm trying to think of all these other things. Now listen, that doesn't mean that she may not do many or all of those things. But this marital bond that God is speaking here is far grander than those. You can pay people to do your laundry. You can pay people to clean your floors. That's not why she married you. Now, I think some might think it that way. Tenderness. Be ye kind, Ephesians 4. Tenderhearted. How about why? I submit to you that this might be the greatest of all of these. Why? Yield to God. Yielded to God. This is the single greatest way a husband can love his wife, by loving his Lord, by dying to self. He'll need to die to self to seek God's will. He'll need to die to selfly desires to have confidence in the Word of God. He'll need to die to self so that he can follow God's methods. He'll need to die to self so that he can follow God's will. He'll need to die to self so that he becomes dependent upon God. He'll need to die to self to be the example that God would have him do. Part of loving your wife 
It's to be yielded to God. We are as husbands, wives, believers to be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. There has never been, to my estimation, a case where a wife would seek counsel because the husband simply loved her too much. You ever seen that happen? I need to talk to somebody why my husband is wearing me out all this love. He listens to me. He cares about me. He prays for me and it's driving you. That's not what you hear. But the opposite is. Now I will admit that a wife that perhaps has been in a marriage where the husband has failed in his responsibility to love may return all of this biblical love cautiously. She may be cautious. She may be unnerved a little bit. She may have to wait. Why? Because you failed in your ministry for so many months, days, years. But a repentance of heart and turn to God has given her an expression that she is unused to. You know, this is so true. Every good gift that God has given us with must be properly stewarded. What is it that God has given us? Salvation. That's a great gift. Yes, and because it is a great gift of God, I'm now to steward my life because I'm bought with a price. And therefore, in Corinthians, I'm told to glorify God in my members which are His. Yes, I don't steward to keep my salvation, but I do steward my life because of that great salvation. I have the Word of God. I'm to be a great steward of the Word of God. No, I don't preserve the Word of God. He preserves the Word of God, but I should hide it in my heart that I might not sin against Him. I have a church. Because I have a church, that's a gift from God. And because it's a gift from God, I ought to steward its existence. I ought to give my time and my talents and my resources to it. For some, God's blessed with children. They are the heritage of the Lord. I am to steward them and to lead them in a plain path. I have relationships with other men and I need to steward those relationships. And that involves a a, a testament of time and sacrifice to do so. Yet cherished of all of these is the matter of the spouse. Whoso findeth a wife attaineth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And I must steward my wife as unto the Lord. I still have so much more that I want to give you tonight, or rather this morning. But look over in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And I'll wrap this up with this verse. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell. That word dwell, it means reside together. Reside together. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Know her. Know what God wants. Know how God wants you to love. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Giving honor. If you write in your Bible, you work right beside that, that has the idea of value. I'm to give honor, value to a number of things. I'm to give honor to the king. I'm to give honor to God. I'm to give honor to my wife. She matters. There is a great esteemed value that God has placed in her life. 
words and to the weaker vessels. Note this, being heirs together. Heirs and participants. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, these two should become one flesh. I'm a participant together with her. We are heirs together of the grace that is the gift of life. But I would in closing hone this last phrase in because it's what happens when a husband fails to love his wife. What's the scripture say? That his prayers be not hindered. That word hindered is marvelous. It has the idea of what happens to a tree that's being cut down. It's hewn down. It's frustrated. Its end goal is destroyed. Oh, many a man fails to realize the importance of loving his wife as Christ has loved the church. He has failed to uh, succeed in this duty diligently. As a result, he wonders why his relationship with God, his prayers are hindered. My, the only way a man can fulfill the obligation of loving his wife in the ways described in Ephesians chapter 5 is if he would walk humbly with his God in a genuine way. Failure to do so is indicative of a life that is not honoring God. Husbands, love your wives. Let's stand for Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 